Um, glad to see you. This is the fourth of um, the series on scientists who believe. And um, uh, if you've been with me on any or all, you know uh, uh, I believe, but I, I'm not much of a scientist. I'm just reporting on what scientists tell me. And so I'll say that right up front. Uh, don't look to me to make any sort of great scientific discovery in a lot of this. I'm just trying to glean from what these people who know what they're talking about uh, have to say about uh, faith. That again, if this is your first time, what I did last year was that I talked about these well-known atheists and the reasons that they have been giving in public about why religion in general, Christianity in particular, is wrong, are wrong. And uh, this time, uh, Gil asked me to balance that off with well-known uh, scientists who do believe in the reasons that they give for why they are religious believers and Christians in particular. Come in. Uh, we've got a few chairs over here. Um, and... Uh, I started off with a big theological claim that I uh, make a point that it represents, I think, the very foundation, not only of theology, but of science. And this is something that theology and science will share, that at the heart of our scriptures is the claim that I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. That's in all our creeds, and it's in a way in which the Bible begins, that God come in. God has created an orderly world, but it's a contingent world. Both of those are true. It's not an either or, it's a both and. That is, the scriptures tell us that God created a world in a strip, in, in, in an order, starting with light down to humanity. Uh, that order, though, is contingent, utterly dependent upon God. It's not eternal, it's not immutable, it's in a sense a state of becoming. So there is order, there's a way in which we can fit, relate, have a meaningful life, understand who God is, understand our outer purpose is, but life is contingent, it's it's dependent upon the reality of God for it to be what it is. It's not immutable. It's not sort of constructed by eternal kind of material principles in it. Both of those are true. I traced the first lesson that we went over on how that idea made its way into theology, made its way into those that began modern science. I looked at Isaac Newton, how he handled that tension between order and contingency. And then last week I looked at this man here named John Pokinghorn, an, an English physicist who became an Anglican priest, and I got fairly well into him, but I wanted to say a few things more about him that I didn't have time last uh, Sunday. So I want to back up a little bit and make just a few more comments about John Pokinghorn before we move on to uh, Francis Collins. Pokinghorn has made a lot out of this idea of what's called kenosis. It's a Greek word that means emptying. Uh, it's found in that wonderful scholars call Christological passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Christ thought it not to be uh, robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself and became a, a person, became a servant, died on the cross so that all knees would bow towards him. This represents how God has lowered God's self, that the reality of God has been lowered so that we can understand who God is, that God is not utterly uh, removed and utterly transcendent, but God is involved, engaged in creation, even to the point where God can become the Son of God, born of a woman, died on the cross, raised from the grave. That is kenosis, that God's constantly sort of emptying God's self, lowering who God is. Well, what Polkinghorne does is that he builds on this idea, this is a very constructive way by which we can understand how God is involved in creation itself that God is constantly involved in every moment because there's not this chasm, a spatial chasm, let's say, 
that separates God the Creator from, God, from creation itself. But God who has created the world as it is, is constantly involved within creation itself because God is lowering who God is. God is becoming involved, experiencing the world as it is. And as a physicist, he tries to account for that in a couple of ways. He gives this phrase top-down and bottom-up. Now, bottom-up refers to the very contingent, concrete ways in which order evolves within the world. If we look at evolution, if we look at design throughout nature, what we see is that the more things change, the more they take on a certain order in order to become stabilized. Of course, the mutations, sometimes things will sort of pass away, but as a species or as a time evolves, there are certain ordering process that go through, processes that go through that. That's, that's inevitable for there to be any kind of sustained creation. And Polkinghorne argues that we have to study that. We have to see the world the way it is. Not try to dream it up and make it conform to absolute necessary principles or immutable truths, but try to come to grips with the basic ordering life of the world as it is. This is the scientist talking to him, I mean talking to us. But there's a top-down information as well. That is, within creation itself, this ordering process seems to move towards some sense of stability. I think I gave the silly illustration that, you know, my DNA wouldn't have ever in any possible way evolved out into being a reptile. Now, some people think I'm cold-blooded, but I, I, I'm not a reptile. I may be hard-hearted and cold-blooded, but I'm not a reptile. I couldn't have become a, a reptile. I became who I am. Now, I'm in a state of change. I'm in a state of flux. There seems to be something informing development, informing the evolutionary process. And what uh, Pokinghorn argues is that God is, in a sense, the information that is guiding creation itself. That God is intimately involved in every moment, not from the bottom up, not moving the particular chemicals and particular uh, events, but as the information guiding system within the evolution of the world. So we have both science and, in a sense, religion here informing us why the world the way it is. Now, one final thing else about Polkinghorne. Uh, he's definitely an Orthodox Christian believer, and he finds a lot of relevance in the Nicene Creed, not only as a statement of our faith, and the Nicene Creed, by the way, if you haven't done this, is very much worth your effort to study carefully, the background of it, why it came about the way it was, what it tries to say. And uh, he thinks it also represents good scientific reasoning for the church. Not just it's science, it's not. You're not going to read the Nicene Creed and know much about the, you know, the genetic code. But you are going to read the Nicene Creed and understand something according to Polkhorn, how we should think patterned after the way science does its pursuit of knowledge. He calls that critical realism. He gets this from a man named Thomas Forsythe Torrance. Uh, Torrance was a very famous, uh, yeah, he's, he's deceased now, uh, theologian from Edinburgh, Scotland. And Torrance talked about that, that at the heart of the scientific method is something very similar to orthodox theological method. And that's what is called critical realism. I had touched on this a little bit last, no, maybe two weeks ago with you, or maybe three weeks ago. What critical realism says is that you have to adjust the way you think according to the nature about what you're thinking. You have to come up with the method appropriate to what you are studying. Science fails and also theology will fail. If it has preconceived ideas about the way the world ought to be, and then tries to interpret experience according to those preconceived ideas. 
Critical realism is that we adjust our thinking according to being. So you study something, you study it very carefully, and you allow your method to adjust to the nature of what you're thinking. Okay, that's at the heart of science, but it's also at the heart of what he thinks is the Nicene Creed. That the Nicene Creed represents good scientific thinking in a way, not according to experience or physical reality, but according to the reality of God. It represents the church there in the fourth century adjusting its thinking relative to the, very, to the nature of God as revealed in Christ. That when it lays out the great beliefs of our faith from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and our future hope, what it represents is how people don't fancify about God or speculate who God is, but how we can rightly think about revelation itself. Here, thinking should conform to revelation. Also, what he thinks makes the Nicene Creed a very, even though it's written in the 4th century, 325 uh, A.D., uh, something very uh, appropriate for a modern thinker is that it's based upon uh, what he calls here a relational view of reality. Um, I know I'm sort of throwing out big, big, big terms out here, but a static view of reality says that every existing thing is unchanging. Every existing reality is immutable. It doesn't change. So we can distinguish and isolate things. We could call them all monads. That's what Leibniz, the German philosopher, called. Everything is an individual isolated monad. Well, in that sense, everything is separate from one another. But a lot of what characterizes modern thinking, science, and also theology, is that being is relational. No individual thing is entirely static but its life is dependent upon its relationships to other things. That at the heart of reality is this interconnectedness, not separate monads, some way or another ordered to one another, but an interdependency of all living things upon the, the great system of life itself. This is the relational view. Well, he also thinks this is at the heart of Christianity. In fact, I would say this, that you, if you adopt the Nicene Creed, that God is... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not that there's a God who is a Father and God who is a Son and a God who is a Spirit, but God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know the Father through the activity of the Son, and we know the Son through the inner working of the Spirit in our life, then we have to conclude that God's being is relational as well. How else could God become incarnate if God's being wasn't dynamic, wasn't relational? How else could we have the Holy Spirit of God poured out upon us at Pentecost in our heart, in the sacraments, if God's being was not relational, if God couldn't be both Father, Son, and Spirit simultaneously. Not as one thing, but as a being that's in a dynamic relationship itself. And that's what the Nicene Creed captures very, very well. And that's why, even though here we are in the 21st century, we have to find ways to express our belief, our knowledge of revelation relative to our age. But it can never be, in my humble opinion, in contradiction to the Nicene Creed. We don't have to say it like the Nicene Creed, because I don't know. I've never heard anybody come up and say consubstantial to me. Have you? Or what is another one of those big phrases? I mean, they meant a lot to people in, in uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean world in the fourth century. But our our pursuits, our knowledge have evolved in such a way that we have to find those terms relative for our age. But what the Nicene Creed says about the nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the being of God is relational, I think is at the very core of our faith. Yeah. Well, uh, that's what Polkinghorne sees it. He sees it as a model as a good sort of rational explanation of what we're trying to know.
All right. Now I want to talk about Francis Collins, uh, one of the perhaps uh, most uh, famous living scientists that there is. Uh, he, uh, as you well know probably, is that uh, he was the director of the Genome Project. That uh, I think their first bit of information came out in 2000 and then it was published in 2001. In fact, we even had him on our campus, I think about that time, come to think of it, around 2001. He was on our, our campus at Sanford and we had a meeting with him at luncheon. And he was very impressive, very humble person, uh, very engaging. Uh, you know, a man of such stature like that uh, took questions very readily, very easily. And so I was very impressed with him. Uh, he uh, was raised in a home that he called, his parents were free thinkers. Um, uh, his father was a scientist, I think he taught at Elon University for a while, and, and then went off to the war and then came back and became a collector of uh, southern folk music and taught that for a number of years. But there was no religious influence in his, his house at all. He had sort of a natural inclination towards science. Chemistry in particular caught his interest because of the formality of chemistry. It seemed to you know, really sort of work well with these principles. And that captured his mind. And so he decided that he wanted to study chemistry, which he did at the University of Virginia. Then he wanted to pursue a Ph.D. and he goes to Yale. And he was first studying chemistry and then he took a course in biochemistry and got really interested in that and switched his Ph.D. program into biochemistry. And then later on he got very interested in medicine and went and got an M.D. at the University of North Carolina. So he's got this scientific background in chemistry, biochemistry, plus this medical background in particular in the study of genetics. And that's why he had the inroad towards the director of the Genome Project. He was agnostic uh, when he went off to college and then he became a um, sort of very vocal atheist and would challenge people with any sort of uh, belief in God and said that there's no scientific evidence for the belief in God. Now one, uh, and I forget, I don't know if it says it or not, he was doing rounds and uh, as a doctor and one of the patients, an older woman, asked him what he believed in do you believe in a God? And he really couldn't answer the question. And that started a series of sort of introspection, introspective questions for him about, you know, why is it that he doesn't believe? Why is it? And he felt really the only thing that he could fall back on is what he called willful blindness and arrogance. That's why he doesn't believe. And then he felt like, well, that's not, that's not good evidence. I'm arrogant, therefore I'm right. That's not a good argument. <laughs> you know, I'm willfully blind of what theology has to say about God, therefore I don't believe in God. That's not a very good argument. And a lot of, and we saw this last time, I think, a lot of what has fueled the interest of the, the very prominent public new atheists in our, our society from Dawkins to uh, Harris and others is this sense of um, blindness about what Christianity really has to say about it. It's, uh, it's claims. But he knew a Methodist minister. The book doesn't really say how he knew him, but and the Methodist minister recommended that he read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Have you read it? I think it's a, it, it is a very good book. Uh, as a philosopher, I would say it's not the end all of all sort of philosophical questions and answers, but it is a very good beginning. It's very reasonable, very well written, and it addresses all the hard questions. I'd recommend that you read it. It is worth your serious consideration. Well, it really captured him. It did. It arrested his attention. And in particular, there was a chapter in there on the moral law that got uh, Collins to think a little more seriously about the possibility that there is a God. 
I'll come back to that in just a minute. But that was the major impact of mere Christianity on Collins' intellectual development. So he started to think then that there's a possibility of a God, that it was a conceivable notion, that it wasn't really irrational or it really wasn't just superstitious, that the way the world is might indicate that there's something about a God. And then he had this emotional conversion experience in which he's in the Cascade Mountains, and he mentions here, and it's in this book called The Language of God, how he came around a corner and he saw up on the mountain a frozen waterfall, and I guess all this kind of came together, similar to St. Augustine's famous conversion there in the the garden, uh, that he felt like he needed to give his life over to Christianity, to Christ. He surrendered to Christ, as he says, at that point. And so it was an intellectual conversion first, and then this emotional conversion second. All right, that which put him on the map, and he, may, he probably is a very good physician, uh, probably, I think, has succeeded very well in that. Uh, but what put him on the map is he is the director of the Genome Project. And currently, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health, which is a very prominent position, very, very influential position. But the book that really made its way onto the New York Times bestselling book was this one, The Language of God, that came out in 2006. A scientist presents evidence for belief. Now, he's been ridiculed by people like Dawkins and Harris for these claims that he has in this book. But this is where he sort of traces out his own personal development as a scientist that made its way into being a believer. And now what does he, as a believer, think about the world in light of science? The other book, which came out just a couple of years ago, is The Language of Science and Faith that he also wrote with Carl Giberson. It's a little more technical, a little more detailed, um, a, lot, a lot more careful reason and arguments in the second book. But this is a very accessible book it very, it, for, any, for a non-specialist in, in the sciences and also in philosophy and theology. This book is very accessible, and, and I'd recommend, if you haven't read it already, that you can make your way through it. You'll learn a lot in it. In, in fact, I'm going to appeal to a couple of things here in just a minute that he has in the book. All right. Um, I want to go ahead and just cut to what I consider, in light of reading this book, and most of this book, uh, what, what is the basic argument that he gives for why a scientist, one that was an atheistic scientist, one trained in the very best of what modern science can offer, one thoroughly, thoroughly convinced that what science offers is indeed about the world, uh, his basic argument for why a scientist can believe in God. And it starts with that principle that he learned there from mere Christianity of C.S. Lewis's, and that is that there is a moral law, a moral law, that everyone has some sense of right and wrong about them. Now, you may differ, and we may differ from people in another culture, and there may be people that are pathological, and they don't have a moral sense for whatever reason. But on a whole, humanity from what we would know to be very beginning of civilization to who we are now across the board has a sense of moral law. Now that caught his attention. But as a scientist, he was also well aware that there have been objections to that. That is, yes, you may have a sense of right or wrong, but I can explain it away. And in the book, he has a couple of brief subchapters dealing with these objections, and there are primarily two objections to it. One of them, and this comes from Freud, that the moral law is just a wish projection. If you know, that's uh, 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 Freud's famous definition of religion. God is just a wish projection. 
that we have this moral law that we are accountable to something. Now, I may be confused about it at times, and I may even reject it and rebel against it, but nonetheless, I have a sense that there is a right and a wrong, that I am being informed, I am being approached, encountered with a moral law, an obligation that this is the person I ought to be. I should be doing that. They should not be doing that. We should not have genocide. We should not have child cruelty. We should not have such rampant injustice and insensitivity. Yes, we know these things. There are things that seem to be morally, obviously right and wrong for all people. But Freud said it's just a wish projection. It's just kind of what we really want. We, we feel guilty. We feel profoundly guilty, according to Freud. And so we project a wish onto reality and ultimately onto God. That is, I need forgiveness, so I'm going to wish that there is a God to forgive me. I need to be accepted, so I project my need for projection, I mean for acceptance, uh, onto nature, onto God. And that's why we have morality and that's why we have belief in God. It's a wish projection. A lot of people have adopted it. I remember when I was in graduate school, a guy who had been a Christian, had gone to seminary, became an atheist. And uh, and we were talking one day and he asked... uh, I asked him, well, why all of a sudden now you're an atheist? And he said, well, I read Freud. I read Freud. Well, uh, here's what Collins says. I could talk all day long about why I think Freud is wrong. But the reason why Collins rejects the idea, I think, is is very, very uh, insightful. Now, of course, a lot of people do treat morality and God as wish projections. There's no doubt about that. We call that infantile faith. I believe in God just because God's good for me. But what uh, Collins says is that if you read the scriptures, that's not the God that the wish projection wants. Because if I were to dream up a God that would always give me forgiveness and acceptance, always accept me and give me a place in the world that is meaningful, rewarding, enriching to me, it wouldn't be Yahweh. It wouldn't be the God of the Old Testament. It wouldn't be the God of the Exodus. It wouldn't be the God who said, if you have a lust problem, pull out your eye or turn your cheek when somebody slaps you. It wouldn't be the God that would be born of an infant. I mean, born of a woman as an infant who suffered and died and was raised from the dead. It wouldn't be that kind of God. Who could ever dream up such a God if your primary motive was to conceive something that would always forgive you and comfort you? Now, again... All of us may harbor this idea that we want a pet deity, sort of an indulging grandfather up there that always sort of pat our hand and give us money and all that, but that's not the God of the Scriptures. And so to say, I worship that God, cannot be just because I want such a God. And that's true. I would, I would, I, I would agree. Freud's argument is that you believe in God because you, you wish for a God. All right? If you were wishing for a God, that God would have saved your your guilt conscience and your loneliness. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures confronts us as a holy, righteous God and makes demands upon us and calls us to repentance, calls us to a new life based upon the, uh, the experience of God in Christ. So that argument he rejects. The other argument is that uh, we evolution has designed a gene so that we would believe in God. And, and morality that evolution has put within us over you know these thousands and thousands and thousands of years this kind of genetic proclivity towards being moral and to believe in God. Okay, he looks at it, and a lot of people argue that, by the way. And I would say this: 
You have to have certain kind of brain constitution to believe in God. I really believe that. I, I, you know, my wife Beverly here and I, we have this pet dog, and she's a wonderful little dog, but I don't think she understands the Nicene Creed. <laughs> You know, I, I've hurled all kinds of Old Testament invectives against her, and she doesn't get it. <laughs> she has no religious sense. I mean, of course, she wants to please us. We want to please her and all that sort of stuff. But morality is more than just being pleasing and being accepted. It's conforming to a, to a command, to an obligation. Our, our belief in God is more than just some brain state that enables me to project something in eternity. Um, now, I think you obviously have to have a certain kind of brain to believe in God, but just because you believe in God is, doesn't mean the brain is the explanation for that. And so what he argues here is, is that altruism cannot really be explained by evolution. It really cannot be. Now, with my children, I will do anything, even sacrifice my life, I think, to help them, for them to survive. That can be accounted for, genetically, maybe, biologically. But the love of neighbor or the love of the enemy or the compassion of the good, semester, uh, good Samaritan, that cannot be accounted for in the same way that biologically we can account for why a parent will keep a child alive so that the child, the, the genes, the family inheritance may continue. And at the heart of our ethic, based upon our belief in God, is that very thing. What's the greatest thing that we can do? Is to give our life for our neighbor, for our friend. That's what Jesus says. What's the greatest thing that God could have done? Is to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So the evolutionary explanation of this moral law is not sufficiently uh, critical of it. It's not, a, it's not a defeater, in other words. It's not a good objection to it. So what, what Collins argues is that this is part of who we are. The human identity, the human conscience, what it means to be a human in the world is to have this sense of a moral law that we are responsible to our reality greater than ourselves, greater than the physical states in which we are in. We are responsible to that. Yes? Quick question. Yeah. Did you address the, the new game theory people who say societies that don't have this moral code simply won't survive? So, no, he doesn't address that. Okay. I, yeah, I've, I've read some of that. Um, but the heart of his argument here is this first claim. We have a moral law that cannot be accounted for as a wish projection or as an evolutionary development. The second, which is a little more complicated, is called the anthropic principle. Anthropic means person, human. Anthropic principle. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting argument. Uh, of course, not everybody buys into this. And he doesn't mean it's an infallible argument that is this anthropic principle that is, in light of certain kinds of highly improbable events within creation itself, within reality itself, then there must be a God. He says these are pointers to a God. That there are things that are part of the constitution of the world itself. They don't prove that there's a God, but they point that there could be a God. It makes the God question very viable, in other words. It doesn't show us who God is, you're not going to go look at the DNA and see God. You're not going to go back to the Big Bang and see a real hand explode it. But these features, the DNA, the Big Bang, gravity, strong forces, weak forces, electromagnetic, all these, he thinks are pointers or indicators that there's something more than just what we're studying here. Let me give you a few facts and figures about this that he, uh, he talks about. Some of you may obviously know more about this than I. 
and if you want to embellish, correct, add to what I'm saying, please do. Uh, he says there are four basic forces in the universe that influence everything that happens. Strong nuclear force, that's the force that keeps things together. The weak nuclear force, and that's the radioactive decay in all things. Then the electromagnetic force, which basically holds the electron in orbit, and it's a constant. There's a constant to the electromagnetic force. And then the fourth would be gravitational force, and that's what gathers matter itself. Those four forces affect everything in the universe. He says, and I'll give you some statistics, some figures here in just a minute, that those four forces have to be arranged in a very, very precise way for human intelligence to evolve within the world. For us to be who we are, those four elements have to be arranged in a very, very precise and highly improbable way for that to be the case. He likens it unto a finely tuned violin. For it to make music just right, it has to be finely tuned. The universe to produce you, a believing being who has a sense of the moral law, who can ask the question that there is a God, a reality to which we're responsible, greater than ourselves, greater than reality itself, than the universe itself. There are things that have to be in set, in place, early for that to happen. <clears throat> now, like I said, I'm out of my league in saying this. I'm just quoting him. Uh, the most phenomenal feature of the instant of creation is the formation of carbon. Carbon occurs when three atoms of helium are compressed. Helium uh, then is joined in this compression by magnetic forces and the strong force. All right? That strong force has to be in the right relationship to the magnetic force for carbon to be uh, created. Carbon is the basic reality of physical existence. And what he argues is this. Let me find it. If it had been different in any way, that is the right relationship of the strong force to the magnetic force, carbon would not have been formed. And there would not be the universe that we now know as. That ratio had to be just right. If a change of one billionth of a gram in the gravitational pull at the instant of Big Bang had been different, at the instant of the Big Bang, the theory is that at 14 billion years ago, we don't have a universe like we have now. We have what's called a singularity. All the matter in the universe that is present was in a singular point 14 billion years ago. Physicists reason that the laws of physics that we know of, these four forces and so on, were not in the Big Bang. The four forces result from the Big Bang. In fact, there's no scientific way to analyze the point of singularity. Why? Because the laws of physics are based upon the four forces. So, if the four forces result for the Big Bang, then what has caused the Big Bang? Well, we, we, we just, we, there's no scientific explanation for what caused the Big Bang. However, though, what he reasons is that at the instant of the Big Bang, if the universe had had one billionth more of a gram or less, 
the universe wouldn't be what it is today. It either, if it had more, once the bang went out, I, I, I'm just trusting his word on this. I, I have to admit, I don't know the math on this one. It would have collapsed. If it had one billionth of a gram less, all the atoms would have been so spread out, they never would have congregated into stars and solar systems and galaxies, life, conscious beings. The density of the universe is finely tuned. He said this, a change of 10 to the 15th, which is what? 10 with 15 zeros, by, is that it? Or point 14 zeros plus then one? I don't, I'm not really for sure. It's a big number. It's a big number. The density of the universe, if it had of a, change, a change of 10 to the 15th, would have either collapsed the universe or expanded it into utter chaos. Highly, highly improbable. He also says that the ratio of the proton to the electron, and this is his number. It doesn't mean much to me, but this is his number. 1,836.1,526 times the mass of an electron. So the protein is considerably heavier than the electron. If changed, the stability, if that ratio were changed, the stability of all atoms would be compromised. Either the electron would leave the proton or be collapsed in the proton. In other words, DNA, which is the very basic chemical feature of organic life, wouldn't have evolved if that ratio had been any different than what it is. In light of all that, after 14 billion years, here we are. We're thinking about it. We're talking about it. We live within it. We're not just matter in motion. We're conscious beings that have a moral law. We are beings who react and accept and make judgments. We have intentionalities. We write poetry. We sing praises. We are beings that have an intelligence that can, intelligence that can understand the world that is designed in a way. And here's the point about the anthropic principle, so that we could be in it. Some way or another, the world is designed so that we as intellectual beings. Of course, we're not the only thing that should be in the world. There's got to be a lot of things in the world for us to be here. But we're not a mistake in this. The world was designed from the very instant of the Big Bang so that eventually, 14 billion years later, there would be intelligent, conscious beings. Now, that's called the anthropic principle. Now, according to him, those are just facts. Those are the principles that we have to adjust to. Then he says that here are some explanations of this, this highly improbable cause to have a world in which intelligent beings can be part of it. He mentions there's a view that's called it's no big deal. All right. It's no big deal that we live in a world that has such a high improbability for us to get into it. That it's not really an interesting thing after all. What's interesting is the study of genes or the study of chemistry or the study of art or the study of uh, philosophy. Those are only interesting. But the fact that the world exists the way it is in which intelligent beings can be in it is just not a, not a, not a starter for many people. Now, here's his objection to that. He uses an analogy from a philosopher named Leslie that says, all right, now let's say uh, you've been sentenced to death and you're going to be killed by a firing squad and the 50 best marksmen uh, in the world are ordered to shoot you at this firing squad. 
All right, you're lined up, you're blindfolded, you hear the guns go off, and you're not dead. And you think, what has happened? Um, uh, I'm not killed. The fifth, the 50 best marksmen in the world have aimed at me, and they've missed. Surely one could have hit me and killed me. There must be a reason for this. And he would argue it would be reasonable, right? That you would want to find out why and how you're still alive. Well, he thinks it's reasonable that we pursue the question, why is the world organized in such a way that we as intelligent beings have come into it? It is a legitimate question. It's not a no big deal. All right. Another illustration of this is what's called uh, um, that one day science will explain everything. It's called the theory of everything, the grand unified theory. The grand unified theory, and I think lately Stephen Hawking, the physicist from Cambridge, has claimed that he has come up with a grand unified theory, is that physics will be able to explain everything, everything. That the questions now that physics can't understand or cannot come up with a cogent answer to, that one day they'll come up with a grand unified theory. Now, he's not against that, by the way. Collins is a man of science. Science pursues its natural causes. It tries to come up with theories that account for experience. That's part of the scientific spirit. That is, we need to come up with more and more comprehensive explanations. To say we ought to quit that is really to say we ought to quit science. So he's not against the pursuit of a grand unified theory in physics. But what he, what he says, though, is that that would still beg a question. You may come up with an explanation of the Big Bang. But again, it begs the question about why is the world ordered the way it is. You may be able to explain that it is ordered. You, you as a world-famous physicist or chemist or whatever, may be able to account for the order of the world, but can you account for the world being, for that there is something rather than nothing just because you can rightly describe the world? It still begs the question. Curiosity wants us to know why is there a world? Not just that we can order it, I mean, intellectually understand it, but can we explain the cause of it? Then another explanation is what's called the multi-universe explanation. And that is there are an infinite number of universes. Infinite number. Statistically, if you have infinity, you have every possibility of something being what it is. So if not just one or two other universes... If we had one or two of the universes, right, it's probably unlikely that we would have intelligent life in the universe. But if you had an infinite number of universes, statistically, there will be one just like this one. Now, what do you think is sort of unsatisfactory about that view? Well, where are all these universes then, if there are an infinite number of them? It's hard to conceive physical reality times infinity. How can there be an infinite number? This argument works because there has to be an infinite number to come up with such a highly improbable universe that there is. Now, all that aside, what he argues then is that these are pointers, these are indicators, and therefore it is reasonable to assume that there was something that created the world in this way so that intelligent life could be on it. It's reasonable to assume that. Now, of course, it's not an infallible argument. It's not like Revelation. But it makes it reasonable to say that the world is an ordered place so that people can be in it in which we can be responsible to the moral law and know and pursue that there is a God to this. Also, and this is, his, this is number three. This is his forte. I've just got a couple of minutes on this one. And that is the Genome Project. 
um, how many genes they are in the human chromosome, all arranged in a certain way uh, that produces information that uh, eventually creates the organic life that we are. Uh, again, I'm out of my league in this. There are people here that can just snap their fingers no more about this than I do. But there's the DNA and the RNA. The DNA encodes sort of the pattern of the life. The RNA is the sort of the transmitter of that information. That's how things can grow with the same sense of informed pattern to it. All right. He, is to study, he studied that. He mapped it out. They were successful in mapping that out. It's kind of interesting how he got started in this as a, as a physician. Uh, there were these anomalies, genetic anomalies that, that he was dealing with, and that made him more interested in why did these things come about? And so the more he got into the, the actual chemistry of the DNA, the more he saw something, and these are his words, awe-inspiring and wonderful. As a chemist, as a geneticist, as a person of science, the more he got down into the, the details, the very chemical nature of what makes us to be the very beings that we are, the more he was captivated by not just the complexity of it, but the sense of organization. And that induced this sense of awe and wonder. Now, scientists obviously can be an, in awe and in wonder, but there's not an algorithmic formula for awe and wonder. And, I mean, you can't put it into a math formula. You can't put it into a logical formula. But what he argued is that that was the right response all and wonder, the sense of amazement that life is the way it is, that as complicated it is at that very, very small level, it creates this kind of sense of order and, and majesty and symmetry, proportionality in, in our lives, and how can that be? And he would step back and just be an amazement about it, a sense of all and wonder. And when he, this was first announced, uh, stood with President Clinton there in 2000, and the Genome Project was presented in its draft form. President Clinton used the word, this is, or the phrase, this is the language of God. I'm not sure where President Clinton got that, but it's a very convenient phrase to describe. This is how God speaks chemically, so to speak. Now, it's a metaphor, and we shouldn't stretch it more than what a metaphor can do, but this is how God has spoken into to use the Genesis metaphor, the dust of the ground. If you remember from the creation account, God got dust, formed it together, and <gasps> breathed into it, and we became a living being. God breathed into the dust. Well, to use the same kind of concept, God spoke into the chemistry of the DNA, this order results, and here we are as beings that can be responsible to God and can pursue a right relationship with God. That's why it's called the language of God. Now, you can be a geneticist, and you can be even smarter than Francis Collins, and not believe that there's a God. I can, I can yeah, I, can, I will say that. But, these are pointers. These are indicators that he said. These raise the question, where is this awe and wonder coming from? Is it just because I'm ignorant and one day I'll figure it out? Or maybe we stand before something that is greater than ourselves. A story that is more comprehensive than all living things itself. And then he also mentions here in number four, he, and this is specifically Christian, he accepts the reliability of the Gospels 
uh, testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. That his Christian faith is not based just upon, I wish this would have happened, but he thinks the Gospels are credible. Excuse me. He doesn't go into much detail about that. He, uh, I think, appeals to a couple of writers and what they say about it. But he's convinced that there's enough historical accuracy to the Gospels to make it plausible that something did happen there that the best explanation for is that Jesus was raised from the dead. They're not just written by the disciples to justify their own movement. They're not just sort of mythological accounts, but they're in some way a historical account. And so he feels like they're reliable enough for a person to say, yes, Christ was raised from the dead. I don't understand all that. How can that be? I don't know. But it is a testimony of some reliability. And so that the Christian faith has some credibility to itself. Now, again, you can read the Gospels and not believe that there is a God. Many, many people do. Many scholars, New Testament scholars, are atheists. They've read the Scriptures just like everybody else. But if you read the Scriptures and you see it as a reliable document, it it raises the reality that something is here and I need now to focus upon it. One more thing. Um, I've got about five minutes here and then we'll shut down. I'll tell you what, I probably ought to leave, cut down about three minutes. Four ways that religion and science relate. Uh, the first two are, to him are obviously wrong. It's when science triumphs faith. That's like Dawkins and Harris and those people. The other one is wrong, too, when faith trumps science, and this is what he would call the, you know, the, uh, the New Earth, six-day literist accounts of creation. And then when science needs divine help, and I had that the initials there, ID, that means intelligent design, uh, he says that he has some respect, some sympathies with the intelligent design movement in that it tries to see God as a creator of the world, but he has really, really, and I think probably correct reservations about the intelligent design movement. Because if you're familiar with the intelligent design movement, what it tries to do is not really talk about God, just talk about what is called irreducibly complex things in the world like the eye. And it picks flagella on certain molecules as being irreducibly complex, saying that evolution cannot account for the development of the eye. Well, maybe so. But he also shows that science in some ways has explained a lot of those things that people previously have thought to be irreducibly complex. But the biggest problem with the intelligent design movement is that it's all piecemeal. You look at the eye, you look at flagella, you look at something. Rather what we ought to be talking about is the whole sense of creation, not small parts within it that God is fixed. And so he, found, he finds the intelligent design movement uh, quite frustrating and not very helpful. He adopts what he calls theistic evolution. And he, he's a, as a man of science, he says you, you cannot do biology if you don't believe in evolution. Evolution is not just a speculative theory, it's an interpretive theory that has proven to be successful in accounting for the way in which we experience genetic growth and the evolution of species and so on. And he says that fact, there is no conflict between evolution and belief in this sense by what he calls biologos, biologos. Baos, life, logos is reason. That there is a reason for evolution to be what it is. That God had a hand in this. He appeals to, let me say this then we'll stop. He appeals to St. Augustine, obviously one of the great intellects of the Christian church, as a way to understand theistic evolution. That Augustine argued that at the moment of creation, God put, 
part of what things are, this information, this purpose, already called seminal, a seed. A seed is in everything that is, and it matures over certain periods of time. That maturation of everything that it is represents God's design for it. Evolution, then, is an expression of the maturation of the seeds that God has put within creation itself. So he argues that this war between evolution and, 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 and faith in Christianity is unfounded. Because at the heart of even the, the, the great theologians, they didn't see creation and God's design of it in any way mutually exclusive. And so he thinks that, frankly, uh, Christianity ought to just, like Pope John Paul II, just adopt evolution See it as a legitimate form of science and reason theologically within it, within those sort of parameters that science offers us. And he thinks they're very compatible. He has no problem accepting those. Now, of course, if you couch these things as, there's got to be a six-day little creation, 4,400 B.C., you're going to have real problem with evolution. What about all those dinosaurs? Or if you're an atheistic scientist and um, all is just matter in motion, it's just sort of random acts that are configured in certain sort of chaotic ways, then yeah, this idea that there's an order, there's a design, won't even be possible for you to conceive. So it's just evolution and atheism. If you, if you believe in evolution, you should be an atheist. Now he's going to argue, if you're a theist and you're an evolutionist, they can be compatible with one another. And I give you this quote here at the end. All right, that's a, sort of a, just an introduction to a very complex man who has done wonders uh, and I think who stands as a good model, as a genuine Christian intellectual, who has made a great contribution to science and to the world, and as a Christian knows that in some ways all this that he knows as a scientist is done to the praise of God. Yes? No. Quick summary statement. Um, when you talked about um, you know, Newton earlier, but before that it was Copernicus and Galileo, and then Newton, of course, Boyle and Kepler. Um, who are all incredible scientists who made amazing discoveries who were uh, Christians and all the way up through a poking horn into um, Collins. Um, you know, the, um, there was a survey done in 1916 where 39% of scientists believed in, uh, in Christianity and the same survey was done in 1997 and 42% of scientists believed in Christianity. And so it's, it's almost amazing how um, you know, 33% of the world is uh, Christian, as Christians. Um, you would think that scientists, through the years, with you know, discovery of penicillin and the Genome Project, would be the first ones to have such a strong faith. Right. So it's just amazing how the you know Christianity or faith is able to go through Galileo, go through Darwin, go through the Genome Project, and we're still where we were back. You know. Right. I know our time's up. Let me conclude with a prayer. Our gracious Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and all things wonderful, we submit in awe to thy majesty and to the wonder of the life that we have. We're grateful for not only the individual experiences that we have, but the fact that we live in a world in which we can be lifted up into the wonder of the stars, the wonder of birth, and the beauty of the life that we live. We're grateful, O oh Lord. Help us to be disciples as great witness of this beauty of thy world. And this I pray. Amen.